Uh, thank you, Sam, uh, for that introduction. And uh, it's nice to see some familiar faces in the audience, uh, long-standing friends. Thank you very much indeed, those of you uh, who I've known for many years, for coming to listen to this. I also know that many in the audience uh, were here uh, a fortnight ago when Professor Harold Ellis gave the first of these Lister Centenary lectures at the college in brilliant and in his own inimitable style. It's a great privilege for me to see Professor Ellis here today, for way back in the 1960s, uh, he was my first chief when I was house surgeon at the Westminster Hospital and Medical School, and he was the inaugural professor of surgery there. Uh, his superb teaching uh, and uh, his expertise gave me the foundation on which my future career was based. And Harold, I thank you warmly from the bottom of my heart but if this lecture turns out to be a dud, I blame it all on you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I've called my talk um, Carbolic Casebook and Controversy, so let me start uh, with Carbolic. Uh, and here I must apologize uh, to some of you for any overlap that you might have heard if you were here two weeks ago when Professor Ellis spoke, but I've tried to keep that overlap to a minimum, but I recognize that some of you are here for the first time. As you know, uh, Joseph Lister, later Sir Joseph Lister, and later still Lord Lister, Baronet, Order of Merit, Fellow of the Royal Society, Privy Councillor, array of honours which no other surgeon has ever uh, received. He's famed for his uh, use of carbolic acid, or phenol, as it's sometimes known, as an antiseptic in surgical wounds and thereby preventing infection which before Lister uh, was almost invariably the case, owing to the germ-laden uh, hands of the surgeon, the germ-laden instruments, uh, and the germ-laden skin of the patient. He first used carbolic in compound fractures of an arm or a leg and showed that life-threatening infection could be prevented with preservation of the limb Previously, amputation was the standard treatment of such an injury. And I remind you, the non-medics in the audience, that a compound fracture is one where the skin and soft tissues are torn and there's a communication between the surface wound uh, and the underlying fracture, allowing the introduction of bacteria. Uh, his epoch-making publication, uh, the opening of which is on the screen, was published in five parts over a four-month period in The Lancet in the year 1867. It introduced what became known as the germ theory of disease, the theory which postulated that germs, bacteria, as we now call them, then completely unknown, uh, were the cause of infection. Sadly, many people today don't know anything about Lister's surgical contributions, but they all know his name well enough as a consequence of a commercial antiseptic to be found on the shelves of every chemist's shop. When you gargle, think of Lister. This product was first introduced in the United States and dates from the 1880s, uh, soon after Lister had visited the States on a lecture tour. By 1883, it was being widely advertised in American medical journals as a general-purpose antiseptic uh, this one in the Louisville Medical News, 
And furthermore, it was also being advocated as a dressing for surgical operations. As well as for many other conditions. However, I can assure you that it has no place in a modern operating theatre. Sadly, Lister never gave permission for his name to be used in this way and thereby missed out on earning a small fortune in commission. But Lister was not the first to successfully use antiseptic dressings in the management of compound fractures. As early as 1802, John Crowther and his two brothers, living in the West Riding of Yorkshire, published an account of 28 consecutive patients with compound fractures treated over a two-year period with hot beechwood tar dressings, without mortality and with preservation of the limb in every case. Beechwood tar is a type of creosote, uh, which is itself a derivative of phenol. Joseph Lister, eat your heart out. But no interest of any sort seems to have been taken uh, by the readers of this article, and there's no further mention of the technique in later issues, uh, and amputation uh, remained the standard treatment of the day. The great French surgeon Baron Larray, who became famous for his work in the Napoleonic Wars, used dressings of benzoin. This is an antiseptic derived from the plant Styrax and best known to us today for its use as the base of Friar's balsam. Larry published successful results in 12 patients in 1824, but again his method was largely ignored. Although a Gaia surgeon, Thomas Bryant, whom you see here, also used Benzoin dressings uh, very successfully in a few cases of compound fracture. So Lister was not the first. The reason, of course, was that none of these early surgeons had any conception as to why their methods worked or considered applying their techniques beyond the treatment of compound fractures. Had their methods received a proper trial, the successful management of such injuries might have become widespread many years earlier. Apart from wood tar and benzoin, a number of other antiseptics had been used as wound dressings over the years, for example, mercuric chloride and silver nitrate. But what is not widely known is that carbolic acid itself had also been used as a wound dressing and as a general antiseptic before Lister. Among others, Le Maire in France, Turner and Lund in Manchester, Watson in Edinburgh, and Wolfe in Aberdeen, had all published articles about carbolic as an antiseptic in the 1860s before Lister's initial paper. They are all forgotten, if indeed uh, they were ever remembered, while Lister is hero-worshipped today, a hundred years after his death. Now, before continuing with the story of Lister and carbolic, uh, we should remember that there were others in the history of germ theory and its application to surgery, uh, namely those individuals who had recognised the importance of cleanliness and hand-washing in the prevention of puerperal fever after childbirth. That is the overwhelming infection of the birth passages and almost always fatal. Ignaz Semmelweis, working in Vienna in the late 1840s, 
is much the best known of these early pioneers. He insisted that hand-washing in chloride of lime was essential before vaginal examination, but failed to convince his colleagues, even though the death rate from puerperal fever in women admitted under his care dropped dramatically from around the 15%, which had been the norm, to 2%. In the United States, Oliver Wendell Holmes of Boston preceded Semmelweis in advocating hand-washing, in plain water in his case, as well as recommending a change of clothing before entering the delivery suite. And the now little-known Charles White of Manchester was earlier still in the late 18th century. However, in no case was their practice accepted by the medical community at large, nor did they take the important step of extending the principle of cleanliness beyond the lying inwards. Sadly, Charles White is now better remembered for keeping the mummified body of one of his female patients concealed in a clock case in his living room for 55 years. Apparently, she was terrified of being buried alive. And Oliver Wendell Holmes of Boston is better known for coining the term anesthesia when ether anesthetic was introduced. And poor Semmelweis was so distressed by the continued lack of recognition of his important finding that he became mentally disturbed, was admitted to an asylum, and it's ironic that he died of septicemia just one day after Lister treated his first patient with carbonic acid dressings. Now, those of you who were here a fortnight ago heard from Professor Ellis that it was while Lister was working in Glasgow at the Royal Infirmary in the mid-1860s that he learned of Louis Pasteur's experiments in Paris on fermentation and putrefaction. These experiments had convincingly shown that there was something invisible to the naked eye in the air which caused putrefaction. Pasteur postulated the invisible something comprised microorganisms that were too small to see and which he called germs. Tiny particles called animalcules had been seen under the microscope since the introduction of microscopy in the 17th century but their significance in the causation of infection was unknown. Indeed, at first, it was not even realised that some of these animalcules seen under the microscope were the same as Pasteur's germs. However, Lister was intrigued. About the same time that he learned of Pasteur's experiments, he also learned that carbolic acid was being used in Carlisle to reduce the smell arising from raw sewage, and that this treatment had coincided with a diminution in the number of cases of typhoid in the city. These two events, raw sewage treatment and a concomitant reduction in typhoid, generated in Lester's mind the idea that it might be that Pasteur's invisible germs, which entered a wound, multiplied and caused infection. He reasoned that if that were the case then infection would not occur if the germs could be killed or somehow prevented from entering the wound. And it was this that was the vital mental leap that his predecessors had not made. He then began, with meticulous attention to detail, to develop techniques both to kill the germs and to prevent their access to the wounds, and he chose carbolic acid as the agent for his endeavours. Of course, we now know 
that he could have chosen any other antiseptic of comparable strength and obtained equally good results. But that's a mere detail. The important thing is that the causative link between germs and infection had been made. Lister's original scheme of treatment uh, required that the dressings be soaked in a solution of carbolic acid so as to kill any germs that might already be present in the wound and then to allow the formation of a sterile scab beneath the dressing which acted as a mechanical barrier uh, preventing ingress of further germs which were present in the air. In the Lancet paper, he describes how he first applied his method on the 12th of August, 1865, in the case of an 11-year-old boy, James G., later known to be James Greenlees, who had a compound fracture of the lower leg resulting from being run over by a cart in a Glasgow street. A lint dressing soaked in carbolic acid was applied to the wound and splints applied to the leg. When the dressing was removed, four days later, there was no evidence of suppuration. And the boy went on to make a full recovery. However, progress was slow at the start, for he reported in that paper only 11 patients, all of whom had compound fractures and had been collected over a period of almost two years. It was not until April 1867 that he first used carbolic dressings for an elective operation. That's to say, a non-emergency operation. Uh, And in this operation, he removed a large tumour embedded in the upper arm, irrigated the wound with carbolic acid and dressed it with carbolic dressings, and the patient made uh, a good recovery. By the July of 1867, just two years after his first patient his universal application of carbolic dressings and his remarkable results in abolishing infection had convinced him that his his speculation of a germ theory of disease was correct. At a meeting of the British Medical Association in Dublin in a paper titled On the Antiseptic Principle in the Practice of Surgery, he reported that in his wards during the previous nine months, not a single instance of pyemia, hospital gangrene, or erysipelas had occurred. Erysipelas, of course, is a spreading infection of the skin, which in those days was extraordinarily common. In the following years, he experimented with different strengths of carbolic lotion and carbolic paste, and with various types of wound dressing, refining and modifying his technique, such that some surgeons who had adopted his principles complained that they could hardly keep up uh, with his ideas and changes. He introduced carbolic catgut ligatures, which, shock horror, he cut short in the wound rather than leaving them hanging from the wound so as to allow drainage, a practice which had been carried out for centuries. He drained wounds by strips of carbolized lint instead of by hanging threads. He introduced carbolic-soaked towels around the operative field. And, of course, he thoroughly soaked the instruments and his hands in carbolic before operating. He also devised the famous carbolic spray, so famous indeed that it was pictured on a postage stamp uh, in 1970, in in a postage stamp uh, in in 1965 at the time of the centenary of his birth. 
Now, the spray was introduced in 1871 and was initially a bulky affair uh, and was known as a donkey engine. You can see one in the Hunterian Museum upstairs, and uh, Professor Ellis illustrated one last time. But this was soon replaced with a portable table model uh, as seen in this contemporary illustration. I might add that operations on the kitchen or dining room table as seen here uh, were common in those days among the many patients who couldn't afford the cost uh, of going into hospital. A fine spray of carbolic lotion soaks the wound, the patient, the surgeon, and the floor. So much carbolic was absorbed, not only by the patient, but also by the surgeon, that carbolurea resulted in blue-green urine was commonplace. Lister used the spray when he operated on Queen Victoria for an abscess in the armpit. Unfortunately, some of the spray vapour got into the Queen's eye, which uh, must have been very uncomfortable and caused considerable distress to the Queen and complaint. But somewhat nobly, Sir William Jenner, who was the Queen's physician, who was in attendance and was responsible for directing the spray at the time, uh, nobly took the blame. And when Lister left Balmoral, the Queen complimented him on his work, saying, a most disagreeable duty, most agreeably performed. The huge publicity around the spray ensured that entrepreneurs were quick to catch on, as evidenced by this advertisement in a popular magazine advocating its use as a face massage. Uh, I hope not carbolic uh, acid, uh, as that would have caused a very unpleasant complexion indeed, as the carbolic was irritant to the skin and caused considerable soreness. Indeed, uh, it has been said that, uh, like Masons, when surgeons met and shook hands, they could recognize each other by the roughness of their hands. How did the spray work? Uh, it comprised um, a boiler here with water, uh, a, a burner underneath here uh, with a flame, which heated the water to cause it to uh, boil a safety valve on the top here, and uh, an exit for the steam that was generated along this nozzle here. The carbolic lotion was in this jar here with a pipe going down. As the steam came out of the nozzle, a very fine nozzle at the point here, by means of a suction effect, a Monturi effect, it sucked up carbolic lotion through this pipe to mix with the steam and so that you've got a fine jet of steam with carbolic mixed with it, which um, sprayed over the patient. Over the years, there were various modifications, of course. This one, by Robert Gibbons, took nine pints of carbolic lotion, so that there was never a need for a weight in the middle of an operation for the boiler to be refilled. However, the spray was in vogue for a relatively short period of time, perhaps about a dozen years, as it became realized that it was not the air that was causing the infection, but the germs on the uh, skin of the uh, patient, on the surgeon's hands, and on the instruments. And by the late 1880s, nearly all surgeons had stopped using a spray, and Lister himself uh, stopped using it in 1887. Lister's surgical results were outstanding. 
and you would have thought uh, that with such excellent results, the use of carbolic dressings would be quickly adopted by everyone. However, far from it. Unlike the rapid spread of anesthesia, the road to universal acceptance of Lister's teachings was far from straightforward. There was scepticism and controversy, often involving the greatest names in surgery of the day. Before we get on to controversy, however, let us make a diversion uh, to East Anglia and a casebook. Now, I have a confession to make. All my life, uh, I've been a book collector, and I can't pass a second-hand bookshop without entering. I'm what some call a bibliomaniac. One sunny afternoon, some several years ago now, I visited a Buckinghamshire country mansion, which you see uh, in this uh, aerial photograph. It was uh, then owned by a book dealer, Peter Eaton, who was a well-known antiquarian bookseller in London, and he used this house, which was his home, as his warehouse. It contained over 50 rooms, each packed from floor to ceiling with uncatalogued books for sale. And in many rooms, there were piles of books heaped on the floor. And in one of those piles, I noted there was a leather-bound volume without any title on the spine. I pulled it out to see what it was and discovered it was a surgical case book. On opening the cover, I found there was a book plate of a Thomas Masters Kendall, FRCS. And as you can imagine, the book was immediately purchased added to my uh, list of other purchases to be properly examined uh, when I returned home. Inside, there were 158 pages of handwritten case histories admitted under the care of Mr. Kendall. And here's an example of a 22-year-old woman admitted in 1865 for the excision of a fibrous tumour over the right shoulder. The operation was carried out under chloroform anaesthetic and she made a good recovery, being discharged, cured. Bottom, as you can see. Here is another case history, this time of a 19-year-old youth with a gunshot injury to his hand, but sadly one that had a less happy outcome. The patient died 16 days after the onset of pyemia infection, spreading infection in the skin and into the bloodstream. And this was again in the year 1865. On further analysis, I found that the casebook contained the histories of 143 patients admitted between January 1865 and April 1871. The gender and the case mix uh, you can see here on the screen. The list of um, diagnoses shows that orthopedic problems and soft tissue injuries uh, to be the most common with various tumours and a smattering of minor conditions. The various forms of acute abdomen, of course, did not exist as a diagnosis at that time, but there were four patients with bladder stones, bladder calculi. Most of the injuries were caused by agricultural tools such as threshing machines, chaff cutters and scythes suggesting to me uh, that Kendall practiced in a rural community. 
The operations that he performed were typical of the time. Excisions of surface tumors and amputations head the list, with various minor procedures such as laying open fistulas and draining abscesses. Most were performed under chloroform anesthesia, but a few were carried out under local anesthetic using a spray of ethyl chloride. There were no intra-abdominal operations, but there were three operations for extraction of bladder stone, each carried out through a perineal approach, that is, between the, in the crutch. Here is one of them in a 49-year-old man admitted in February 1866 with a sudden stoppage of water and blood in his urine. The operation uh, had to be postponed owing to an outbreak of erysipelas in the ward, wrongly spelt, incidentally, by the house surgeon who presumably wrote this note. But a month later, he was readmitted uh, and the operation was performed under chloroform anesthetic using the so-called lateral approach. Two months later, a successful outcome was recorded with the words cured penned in a flourish uh, at the bottom of the page. His post-operative results were impressive. There were very few complications, erysipelas infection being the most common. His mortality rate was also highly commendable at only 7% after what would be considered, uh, all of which would be considered major surgery. The list of the operations uh, are listed here on the screen, 7%. Compare that with what was the norm in many other hospitals, including the London teaching hospitals, Guy's and St. Thomas's, my own hospital, uh, and you will see that the results uh, were very impressive indeed of Mr. Kendall. And of course, uh, some of the patients didn't have operations at all. They were treated by the standard medical treatments of the time, the few drugs that were available, leeches, in, which were still commonplace, and of course, alcohol. Now, who was this Thomas Kendall, FRCS, and where did he work? So I turned uh, to the biographical details in Plas Lives of the Fellows of the College. That's the standard biographical text of all fellows of this Royal College. And found his entry, in, which showed that he uh, qualified from St. George's Hospital in 1842 with the membership of the Royal College of Surgeons and the licentiate of the Society of Apothecaries. He passed his FRCS examination in 1857 and became a consultant in King's Lynn at the West Norfolk and Lynn Hospital, seen here on this slide as it was in Kendall's day. He died at the early age of 51 when the casebook entries uh, end. His obituary in the local newspaper, the Lynn Advertiser, described him as a warm-hearted and charitable man held in much esteem by a large circle of friends and by the inhabitants of the town and neighbourhood generally. Now, why, you may well ask, uh, am I telling you about one of my book-collecting finds? The answer uh, is to be found in the case history of a nine-year-old boy, Lewis Clark, who was admitted in June 1867 with necrosis of the tibia 
that's death of the tibia, caused by osteomyelitis. On the 22nd of that month, he underwent removal of necrotic bone under chloroform anesthesia. And the following month, in July, he underwent further removal of necrotic bone, and on this occasion, the wound was dressed with carbolic acid lotion. The date was the 15th of July, two weeks before the publication of the last instalment of Lister's groundbreaking paper in The Lancet. You remember it was several issues over four months. This is the first mention in the casebook of carbolic dressings being used. Previously, the dressings were either simple water dressings uh, or something called styptic colloid. The boy did well, uh, and at the end of the case history, there is the comment, discharged, cured, a very good case. Nowhere else does such a comment appear, and from an analysis of the various handwritings in the volume, I believe this to have been penned by Thomas Kendall himself. Subsequent to this case history, the vast majority of operation entries refer to carbolic acid dressings being used. As shown here, in a 19-year-old woman who had an operation on the septic knee joint. Sometimes the house surgeon wrongly writes carbonic acid, as here. And here again. But there is no doubt that carbolic acid was meant. This particular entry is the case history of a man who jumped out of a first-floor window in bare feet in August 1869. He sustained a compound dislocation of a bone in the great toe. And as you can see, carbolic is misspelt as carbonic twice. But there is no doubt that carbolic uh, was actually used uh, and meant for six months later, this very same case history in, in, in manuscript here was published in The Lancet, and the text explicitly refers to carbolic acid lotion being used, as highlighted on the screen. Sadly, there's no hard evidence that Kendall began using carbolic dressings because he had read Lister's publications. Lister's name is not mentioned anywhere in the volume. But the coincidence of dates uh, in Kendall's first use of carbolic and his immediate change in surgical practice uh, is, to my mind, remarkable. And I venture to suggest that Thomas Gen Kendall, a humble country surgeon in East Anglia, was one of the very first to recognise the importance of the antiseptic principle in surgery, and in my opinion, he merits a small but valid place in medical history. As a rider to this story, uh, I'm ashamed to, to tell you that the surgeons in my own hospital, St. Thomas's, didn't even try carbolic, let alone use it regularly, until four years after Kendall first used it. And that brings us on to controversy. Let's return to a slide I showed earlier, quoting Lister in 1867, at a meeting of the British Medical Association. During the last nine months, not a single instance of pyemia, hospital gangrene, or erysipelas has occurred. 
you would have thought there would have been a great excitement amongst his surgical colleagues at the meeting and also among the many readers of his later articles with a rapid widespread of practice of antiseptic technique. But that was not to be. Despite Lister's several articles over the next three years in The Lancet and the British Medical Journal describing the methods, the vast majority of surgeons were unconvinced of his methods and were not shy of writing letters to the journals to say so. To each of these letters, which were sometimes really overtly hostile to Lister and his technique, Lister responded in measured and considered tones, which was typical of his Quaker background. Even in his own hospital in Glasgow, the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, there was hostility by his surgical colleagues. One of them was a, a James Morton, and he was so opposed to Lister's ideas that he not only wrote strongly worded letters of objection to the Lancet, but he also published a lengthy article in which he firmly denied Lister's results from his allegedly first-hand knowledge of the wards of the infirmary. He went even further. He denied that germs were dangerous or that they caused infection. And he even threw doubt on the importance of Pasteur's findings. History doesn't relate whether he later came round to the realisation of his errors and offered an apology to his former colleague, but he did go on to become the president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. One hardly need say that when he died, he had many laudatory obituaries, but none of them mentioned his earlier opposition to Lister and the germ theory of disease. Now, over the next 10 years or more, controversy reigned over the Lister. Surgeons were uh, divided in their views about his antiseptic methods, as were the medical students who listened to him and watched him operate, first in Glasgow and then in Edinburgh, uh, where he moved in 1869. In both published articles and in medical society meetings throughout the country, antiseptic surgery was the issue of the day. Although a few surgeons were his disciples from the beginning, the vast majority were sceptics. This was often because they claimed to have tried Lister's methods, uh, but um, had not been successful in preventing infection. Uh, the reality was that they thought they had tried Lister's methods, but in fact they hadn't, because they fully, didn't fully understand or even accept the underlying principles. The stumbling block was the germ theory. Many surgeons were unable to come to terms with the idea that wound infection was caused by minute living organisms which at the time had not been isolated. Some abandoned antisepsis entirely and denied the germ theory completely. Others simply waited, being apathetic in the sense that they did nothing. They were waiting for proof of the theory, which eventually came in the 1880s. Even the pathologists were at sixes and sevens. At a meeting of the Pathological Society of London in 1875, one speaker believed that germs were produced by disease rather than disease by germs. And the joke was heard, shut the door or profess that Lister's germs may come in. The Lancet, however, championed Lister and suggested that a special ward should be set aside in a London hospital where strict antisepsis should be used then it would be easier to compare the results of the operations on patients nursed in that ward 
uh, with the results of operations on patients looked after elsewhere without antiseptic principles. But this sensible suggestion was disregarded. Arguments raged, and nowhere was the opposition more fierce than in London. It was the vocal opposition of many of the London surgeons, some of whom were the acknowledged surgical leaders of the day, that led Lister to move from Edinburgh to King's College Hospital uh, in London in 1877. He believed that by coming to work in the capital, he would be in a better location to convince the die-hard sceptics of the rightness of his views. Now, you will see from this roadmap that at the time of Lister coming to King's College Hospital, it was not in Denmark Hill, where it now is, but it's sighted just a mere stone's throw from where I stand now. Here is the College of Surgeons in Lincoln's Inn Field. You came in through the front entrance. Portugal Street runs along the back, and that was where King's College Hospital was sighted, just behind a stone's throw from the hospital. Here is um, the operating theatre in King's College Hospital, Portugal Street, in which Lister was to try to demonstrate his techniques to the sceptics. And many of those sceptics were closely involved with this college, several of them to become president. So where better for Lister to work than just round the corner? This portrait in the college collection is of Sir William Ferguson, senior surgeon at King's, master technician, an acknowledged leader of British surgery at the time, the author of a standard book on surgery, as well as in many important papers, and in 1870, president of this Royal College. He was also a leading sceptic of Lister and his principles, as were many of his colleagues at King's, such that the medical students there were afraid to support Lister uh, because of their seniors and their examiners uh, were hostile to his views, and therefore his classes remained small. In this room, there are several pictures around the wall of the council of the Royal College at varying times in its history. This picture of the council in 1884 hangs in the corridor just outside this room. You, most of you will have walked past it as you came here. By this time, of course, in 1884, uh, the germ theory and Lister's work had finally been accepted, and aseptic surgery, that is, uh, prior sterilization of the instruments by heat and the dressings as well, aseptic surgery was beginning to replace antiseptic surgery. Carbolic uh, was on the way out. Pictured here on this uh, large portrait are all the leading surgeons of London in the late Victorian era. However, I regret to tell you that most of them had been hostile to Lister's work in the early years. Joseph Lister himself... is here, ringed, having been elected to the council uh, four years earlier. 
and his teachings, as I say, now accepted. And there's also another famous name, Spencer Wells, of artery forceps fame. And two years before this picture was painted, a president of this college. But I'm sorry to say he was a sceptic for some ten years before he was won over. Here is a much better portrait of uh, Spencer Wells, which hangs in the Great Hall, just through here, in a place of, pri place of pride. Look at him closely. Do you recognize him? You should, for you saw him earlier. Here he is, uh, in his, pictured in his textbook of 1882, using the spray, obviously after his conversion. But it's to this central group of figures around the president uh, in the council portrait that I particularly want to uh, draw your attention to. For here are pictured the single most hostile of all surgeons as well as one of the most supportive. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. William Savory, Fellow of the Royal Society. Later, Sir William Savory, Baronet, Surgeon to Queen Victoria and President of the College. As well as these distinctions, he also distinguished himself in his early career by being the most outspoken of all the leading surgeons against Lister's teachings. In 1879, some 12 years after Lister's first publication, he was invited to give the main surgical address at the annual meeting of the British Medical Association, and he used this forum to launch into a violent attack on Lister's methods in front of a large audience. His lecture was published and widely commented upon but it merited a two-page leading article in the British Medical Journal where the anonymous Lisa writer tried to temper Savory's inflammatory remarks. However, uh, much as Savory poo-pooed Lister's work, he did have the grace to say at the conclusion of his lecture, I have the consolation in the assurance that if I am in error, these words of mine will prove no serious obstacles to the progress of truth. He was certainly a diplomat, as would be expected from someone on the staff of Barts. <laughs> we also have pictured here another William, William McCormack. He also became president of the college, a baronet and surgeon to the Queen. But in contrast to Savory, McCormack was at St. Thomas's and arguably the foremost exponent of Listerism in London. He promulgated Lister's teaching at every opportunity. It was McCormack who, in 1880, arranged for 15 of the leading surgeons of London, including Lister himself, to assemble at St. Thomas's to hear an address on the subject and then engage in open debate before a large audience. Reading the published account of this debate which was so prolonged that it had to be adjourned and continued two weeks later, it's clear that the doubters were by then in a small minority and they were won over at that meeting. The London surgeons were the last to be convinced. Scotland had already been converted, but it was Europe which, which uh, was the way ahead of the game. 
German surgeons in particular had adopted Lister's methods at an early stage, and by the 1880s, Germany had become the leading surgical center uh, in the world. Notable among the many great German surgeons of that era was Theodor Billroth, the acknowledged founder of abdominal surgery. The subtitle of this book on clinical surgery is Reports on Surgical Practice Between the Years 1860 and 1876. The very first chapter is titled Antiseptic Treatment of Wounds, and the first sentence begins, In 1875, I first began to employ the antiseptic method regularly. He then goes on uh, to explain how he sent one of his assistants to England to learn Lister's methods firsthand, and how he then practiced antiseptic surgery with the greatest of diligence. He went on to perform the first successful removal of the stomach for cancer, and also many other successful intestinal operations, successful as a result of Lister's methods. It was he and others practicing in Germany who led the way from antiseptic surgery to aseptic surgery, so that by the 1890s, the face of surgery had changed forever. Listerism had come of age, controversy had ceased. But to finish, I must mention one other president of the college. Sadly, the college owns no portrait of Sir Henry Howes of Guy's Hospital, but here is a photograph. Unlike most of the other college presidents, he was someone who espoused Listerism from the very beginning. Indeed, he was so devoted to everything Lister, he has the distinction of being the very last surgeon in the country to regularly use a carbolic spray, almost until the year 1900. Sir Henry, therefore, is the perfect introduction to my surprise finale which I hope will come through the door, an original Lister spray working in action so you can see how it actually works. Haley, please. We need the lights up. Do feel free to... It won't explode. No, not yet. Right, now, you can see the flame alight. The uh, boiler should be boiling. Let's check it with a valve, yes. We hope there's a good head of steam up there. I'm going to turn the tap. And steam is coming out. And with a bit of luck, the potassium permanganate, which I'm putting into the 
will allow you to see that the thing will become purple. Is the, are the lights fully up? It's cold because the cold water here cools the spray that comes out. Um, you need a dark background to actually see that you can't see the spray is working. We can get a, have we got a, a jacket? Let me put my jacket on. You'll be able to see it against the jacket. Can you see the spray? Right. <laughs> now you want to be convinced that it's sucking up from here. We need to give that a bit of a stir. It's, it hasn't really coloured up as quickly as I would have hoped. But if we just wait, you'll see that uh, become purple in due course. With the, have we got a stirrer, Haley? Got something to stir the potassium for manganese. It's, it's taking a time to dissolve. The, um, the chemist shop serves potassium permanganate in tablets now rather than in the crystals that I used to use in chemistry lessons. So anyone volunteering to come and lie on the table? <laughs> what? <laughs> Can we give it a stir, Vichy? <laughs> try and, try and, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, now that should, uh, wonderful. 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 Thank you. I've... Right, well. That's the lecture. Whilst, whilst you're waiting for the purple to appear, I'm very happy to answer any questions that anyone has. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Well. Uh, well, it's a very good question. Um, I imagine that there were incidents of, of some of the spray getting in the surgeon's eyes. I'm, I, I'm, if it happened to Queen Victoria, it can certainly happen to anyone else, so I think it's quite possible. I've never read uh, anywhere that that caused any hostility. There is this well-authenticated uh, incident with Queen Victoria, which is, in the, uh, it, it, which is well recorded. But um, it's a good suggestion. I don't know. It may, maybe you've hit on something that I didn't know. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Um, this was gone into in some detail last time. There was a famous American surgeon called William Halsted who uh, uh, operated using uh, strong antiseptics at the time. And his theatre sister, who worked with him, the theatre nurse, the scrub nurse, as they're called in the States, she developed a very severe eczematous condition of her hands as a consequence of the antiseptic. And Halstead uh, found a pair of rubber gloves made by a firm called Goodyear, who's now best known for making car tyres, to... Um, 
for her, the theatre scrub nurse, to wear these rubber gloves when she was working with him, and which she did, and, of course, her hands gradually improved. And Halstead then thought, well, this is a good idea. You know, why don't I use them? And his assistants presumably felt the same way. And so he wrote them. I think he was written about, and gradually, slowly, not quickly, more and more surgeons started to use them, and, and glove makers sort of started to make them. But operating with bare hands went on for several years after that beginning with Halstead in the United States. And the nice thing about it is that Halstead married his theatre sister, as some of you will know. <laughs> yes, sir. What is it about some surgeons? <laughs> Not all surgeons fall into this category. Just think of Sir Henry Howes of Guy's Hospital, who accepted it right at the beginning, and William McCormick. No, I mean, I don't think there's anything special about it. I just think that they, um, they found it difficult to make the mental leap to the fact that there was something they couldn't see that was causing infection. I think that was the real thing. Lister and his supporters felt that the evidence that they had, even though they couldn't see the, the, the bacteria, although they could under the microscope, but it hadn't been shown definitely that th these caused infection, and that people were just thought, no, this is poo-poo, this couldn't be the case. And there were many theories of the cause of infection at that time, um, but uh, bacteria, a term then completely unknown, uh, was not one of them. But they were won over, it just took a time. Yes. 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 Well, the, the, inf the infection rate in most London hospitals was about the mortality. The mortality rate was from operations was about 18 percent, and for some operations, much much higher than that. If you took amputations, it, um, it could be higher than that in some instances. And it was for this reason that certain operations were never performed. You couldn't, to open an abdomen and do an operation on the inside of the, in the abdominal cavity was absolutely out because you knew that the patient would get peritonitis and that would be fatal. And so anybody that did have an operation was virtually 100% mortality. Uh, in, in the country, well, he, the, 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 the theory is perhaps that contributing to the high infection rate in the London hospitals and the big hospitals in cities was that they were much dirtier than the West uh, Lynn uh, you know, hospital out in the country where there was the country air and the, opera, and the atmosphere was probably a lot cleaner than in London, soot and smoke and so on in the big cities, not in the small towns, and that's possibly the explanation. Well, 
Yes. Well, not, I don't think carbolic acid was used, but antiseptics were used quite widely, yes. Uh, in the Boer War, 1900, 1901, there was a combination by that time. There were aseptic surgery had been established in the 1890s and so by the time of the Eighth Boer War but of course you can't always compare some surgery in wartime with what goes on in peacetime in the hospital environment uh, and emergency operations in the Boer War in, uh, on the field of battle or in the tents the surgical tents that were put up was rather different and so antiseptics would certainly have been used there's one other lady here. Yes. Yes, and the reason why he had that... Operations for stone had been performed for many, many, many hundreds of years, successfully in many cases, and the reason that it was successful is that the approach to the bladder was not through your tummy, as you might imagine. It went up through the, what we call the perineum, which is the crutch area, and it went up and it did not enter the abdominal cavity. And so when the infection developed, as it quite often did, the infection drained away to the exterior and didn't um, go around the patient as a septicemia and cause the patient to die. So Pepys was also lucky that the surgeon had operated on him, I'm pleased to say a St. Thomas's surgeon, <laughs> uh, whose picture is in the great hall here, oh, in, in the council room. Uh, he, he operated, for the, it was the first case of the sort of weak sort of thing, and he had cleaned and washed his instruments from the bloody operations that he had done the previous week, and so he was the first patient, and so the instruments that he used were were relatively clean. I'm not suggesting they were sterile, but they were clean. They'd been washed. And that may have assisted the fact that he didn't get a sort of overwhelming infection. And Pepys, of course, celebrated every year the uh, successful results of his uh, bladderstone operation, even though it rendered him sterile. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, antiseptics of varying sorts had been used for many years in different uh, situations, of creosote being one, as you rightly say. And it, as I say, it is a derivative of phenol. Because the important thing is, although though Lister used carbolic acid, he could have used any antiseptic and got exactly the same results as he did. But he happened to choose carbolic by chance, really. Did it turn purple? Above and beyond the Oh dear. <laughs> A